Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm AJ Scott. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Calamity, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in February 2017. In our first story, Karen Stein is hiding a cigarette addiction from her mother, but can she keep up the charade when her electricity is knocked out during a scorching hot weekend? So it's entirely possible that my father knew that I was smoking cigarettes when I was in college. I was home for break, and I was at a diner with a friend and a cousin. And as we were winding down, I lit up a cigarette, and we're just talking. And at some point, I glanced up, and there's my father on the other side of the window, frowning at me. (laughs) Now, I knew that he and my mom and some friends were going to a movie that night, but I didn't know that we were all going to end up in the same town, which was not the town we lived in. And uh, (laughs) so I don't know how long he had been standing there. He had kind of just wandered away from the crowd, apparently, and saw me through the window. So I don't know if I was holding the cigarette, exhaling from the cigarette, or if it was even just sitting in the ashtray. But (laughs) if he hadn't seen me touching the cigarette, he would have so figured out. I mean, he should have figured out that it was mine based on my awesome Oscar-worthy performance when I ran outside to greet them, wide-eyed and (laughs) rambling, (gasps) Hi, how was the movie? It's so funny that you're here. We're here too. We're having diner, dinner, food. Hi, how was the movie? (laughs) There are a lot of adjectives that people use to describe me. There's a whole range, but I don't believe smooth has ever been one of them. (laughs) So we never had a conversation about it though, so I never found out what happened, like what he saw. However, I do know that if he saw anything, he never said a word about it to my mother because that absolutely would have been a conversation. (laughs) Now, parents not wanting their kids to smoke and then the kids smoking anyway, that is not anything special. And in fact, I would argue that there is an unwritten law that if you produce a family sitcom, that has to be the plot line of at least one episode. But in the sitcoms, it's always pretty much the same thing. Smoking is bad. Stop doing that. Oh, okay. Well, it was my friends anyway. Boo, smoking. And and I can't claim to have seen every sitcom ever produced, but I'm going to assume that unlike my life, they never had the backstory that grandma was a very heavy smoker who died when mom was barely out of college. And I'm going to assume that in these sitcoms, unlike my life, mom hadn't become so anti-smoking that she worked for the Chicago Lung Association and basically wrote the anti-smoking program for the entire city of Chicago, (laughs) which was published in the Chicago Tribune and broadcast on the TV news. Now, I was really good at being anti-smoking when I was a a little, little one. Um, I I had it nailed down. You know, you walk down the street and there's someone smoking a cigarette and I would do the whole... (laughs) I was super cute. (laughs) But, you know, the... (laughs) There was seemingly no irony in the fact that I loved candy cigarettes and I used to pretend I was smoking pretzels. And my brother saw me do this once and said, oh, you're going to be a smoker. 
And I was so horrified and offended by this suggestion. Absolutely not. But then about midway through high school, something changed. And it went from, ew, who's smoking, to, ooh, who's smoking? And so at 17, a bunch of my friends and I went to the beach with a pack of Marlboro Lights and a whole lot of curiosity. And <laughs> it was fucking disgusting. <laughs> it tasted like dirt, and I felt dizzy and nauseated. But, of course, I kept at it till I liked it. Now, this wasn't about rebellion. Don't get me wrong. This was more about pushing boundaries. And it was really easy to push boundaries in this household because both my parents were super preoccupied with their own things. Both my brother and sister were out of the house already. So the only thing is I was pushing the boundaries very quietly because anti-smoking was so my mother's jam. Like it was her life it was her life's work at this point. And so it had just there was this deep, deep fear in me that it wasn't that smoking is bad, but that people who smoke are bad. And so I was gonna keep that secret crammed in the vault as deep as I could for as long as I could. And I went out of state to college for five years and my roommates and my boyfriends were always smokers, so it was actually pretty easy to hide. But when I moved back to Chicago after, after I graduated, it wasn't quite as easy. I lived with my fiance, uh, who was a smoker, so you know I was, it was easy to blame the smell on him. But I was so profoundly addicted at this point. I was up to a pack a day of Camel Lights, um, and I had been really good at smoking for years. So I just... I, I, <laughs> if I went too long with nicotine withdrawal, I would actually kind of turn into a monster and sometimes cry. <laughs> and I hadn't made the connection yet between what between my addiction and the effect of keeping it hidden. So I just thought that I really hated being around my family. <laughs> so so basically, I would always keep my visits really, really, really brief. And this was kind of pushed to the limits on one hot stretch in July 1995. And to say hot actually feels like a lie because that does not capture what this was. So on a Wednesday, it was low 90s, high humidity, nothing we hadn't experienced before, borderline intolerable, but you know, we'll live to tell the tale. The next day, Thursday, 104 and 106 degrees at the two Chicago airports. Now again, we're in a city, so asphalt everywhere, brick buildings, tar roofs, air pollution, factor in the humidity, it felt like 125 degrees. And there was no rain in the forecast <laughs> for the entire week, so we were not going to catch a break. It was the kind of day where like, you can hear yourself talking to your coworkers about the weather, and you know that you're just, I mean, you're boring yourself, but you're kind of like back here <laughs> watching this happen, and it's a force bigger than us all, and it's just like, fuck off, we're talking about the weather. It is the only thing happening right now. <laughs> this was so brutal that to leave work and get on a super crowded rush hour bus felt like a terrible idea. And then to get off the air-conditioned bus once home felt like a terrible idea. To have an idea felt like a terrible <laughs> idea. 
I'm going to be so presumptuous as to speak for 2.8 million people. We were miserable, all of us. And <laughs> we did not think it could possibly get any worse. Unless you lived on the north side, on Friday, while this was all still going on, Transformers at the ComEd facility blew, and 50,000 households on the north side, my household included, lost power. No electricity? Meh. Okay. No air conditioning? Holy shit. <laughs> now, th the shit was exceptionally holy at my house because... I lived in a first floor apartment in Wrigleyville, like a block and a half from Wrigley Field, and a very good neighborhood, but so many people coming and going at all times that there was a decent amount of crime. And so to protect the building from break-ins, the landlords had nailed the windows shut. <laughs> I know you heard that, and I'm gonna say it again. <laughs> they nailed the windows shut. <laughs> We had a dog, so we couldn't leave her alone. And he, I was a secretary, he was a bike messenger. I mean, we didn't really have any options. And all of our friends actually lived within this affected zone. So there was nowhere for us to go. So we just said, all right, well, you know what? We'll keep the back door open, keep the screen door closed, and we'll just stay awake until the heat, it's heat, yeah, <laughs> until the air conditioning comes back on. It never came back on that night. We smoked a lot of cigarettes, but it never came back on. Saturday, high 90s, high humidity, still no electricity. Now, at this point, my mom and my dad had divorced, and my mom was living with her then boyfriend um, in an apartment just a couple miles west. They had lost power on Friday also, but theirs was back on on Saturday. And my mom invited us to stay at their house. And I thought about it but I was so crabby and so tired from not sleeping and just the stress of all of this, plus the weather, I knew I was gonna need cigarettes. And I was also gonna need cigarettes just from the stress of trying to prove that I'm not a bad person, I swear. So I said no. I mean, they got their electricity back within a day. How much longer were we gonna have to wait? Two days! We had two more full days of extreme heat, extreme humidity, and extreme sleeplessness. I, by Sunday, we just were like, you know what? If someone breaks in, who fucking cares? The, the, the dog will probably bark. Maybe we'll wake up. Who fucking cares? So by daybreak Monday morning, we were awoken to the most glorious sound ever, which was the fan from the air conditioner working. Now, let me tell you a little bit about that weekend, because it turns out that while we were literally in the dark, we were actually figuratively in the dark as to exactly what was happening. The city had issued a heat advisory, but didn't call it an emergency until sometime on Saturday. And so people were just getting sick and dying all over the city. And I mean, one by one, emergency rooms were announcing, we have no room for more patients. The morgue was so stretched to capacity that there were refrigerated trucks full of bodies down the block waiting for the bodies to be processed. All told, I think the, the lowest estimate is that 450 people died that weekend. Yeah, it was something. And most of them were elderly. 
and pretty much all of them had no air conditioning. So to recap, <laughs> so that I would not be judged by my mother, <laughs> I decided to <laughs> keep the secret of this habit that could kill me in the long run by staying and sweating in the heat that could kill me tomorrow. And within two years, the secret crashed and burned. There was a relative who had known all along and just on her own freelance decided it was time for my mom to know. <laughs> and yes, there was a conversation or two or 10. <laughs> but what was not part of these conversations was any judgment of my value as a human person or as a daughter. Clearly, I had picked up that gene that really, really, really likes cigarettes. <laughs> and so, you know, she, she didn't want me to meet the same fate as her mother. She was really just worried about my health. And ultimately, so was I. Ten years later, I decided 17 years was more than enough, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I was back to, ew, who's smoking? But I was talking about myself. <laughs> and so I went full blitz. I did Wellbutrin, I did the patch, I did the gum, I did nicotine inhalers, and I cried and I cried and I cried so much through the, one of the hardest things I have ever done. Now, I don't know necessarily that if my secret had come out sooner that my habit would have ended sooner, uh, but it's interesting, just, you know, even as adults, we still fear the judgment of our mothers but with that secret coming out, I was finally able to get it through my head that I'm going to make a lot of bad choices. I've made several bad choices since that one. Don't get me wrong. I've not learned to stop making bad choices at all. At all. But me making a bad choice doesn't mean that people are going to think that I am a bad person, not even my mother. Thank you. <laughs> Next, Crystal Frost isn't sure how she feels that the destruction from Tennessee wildfires includes the chapel where she married her first husband. So I have a job um, where I talk uh, for a living. I don't actually know how I got that job. But, um, but realistically, a lot of it has to do with, it's more about listening. Because sometimes you have to talk about things that you know very little about, so you ask questions that you think are good questions. Um, and sometimes you have to talk about things that you think are incredibly boring, like insurance. <laughs> and for one hour, I was talking about insurance. And, and it's not to say that insurance is incredibly boring. It's just to say that at some, some point, you just go, I don't know what else to ask you. And then you wander, and your eyes sort of dart around the room. And you go, okay, I, I don't know. But ironically, in this particular conversation, they were talking about taking a video and taking pictures of all of the stuff you have in your house. So if you're not a minimalist, it's going to take you a long time to do that. But they're telling you to do this. Take a video of it, and then, then if for some terrible, unfortunate reason you have a fire, um, you will have this. You put it in a fire proof safe or you put it up on the cloud, whatever that is, and 
you do that. And, and here I am, and I'm nodding politely, and I'm trying to figure out the next question I'm going to ask that is going to rock the insurance world. <sighs> and my eyes sort of drift away into the television, which is right up there in the studio, in our, our radio studio, and I recognized it immediately. The chapel was on fire. And I, and I don't mean like, oh, there's some smoke coming from the roof. I mean, there were actual flames engulfing this tiny little chapel in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And so I finished my conversation about insurance, interestingly enough, and I sent a text to my ex-husband that said, Cupid's Chapel of Love is burning to the ground and I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about that. Because 16 years prior to that massive wildfire that you guys maybe remember that tore through Gatlinburg, Tennessee last summer, I was a young woman who was pregnant with my first child and I was determined not to get married just because I was pregnant. And it was June at this point. I was stubborn and I was hot and I was fat, and I was in Tennessee. <laughs> we told people that uh, we moved, my boyfriend and I, we told people that we moved because he got a job offer uh, building cabins in the Smoky Mountains. But that's not really the reason. We, we moved because I was running away from years of bad memories that ended with my father being sentenced to life in prison and that happened on April 28th in the year 2000. And we were living in a crappy apartment in Johnson City, Tennessee on May 1st. We had put all of our belongings in a U-Haul attached to our Ford Taurus. And really, all we had were some clothes, a few dishes, and a Kawasaki awesome motorcycle which I was still determined to ride even though I was very pregnant. Because it was the beginning of a new life and nobody was going to be around to judge and it was gonna be great. And I was anxious and I was delusional, but I was eternally hopeful. So on one particularly hot Saturday afternoon, my boyfriend and I were in bed listening to the sirens outside because we lived in a kind of bad neighborhood we didn't know about. And I put one, my head, I put my head on his um, chest and, and I put my hand on my belly that was probably actually a lot bigger than it should have been being only shy of six months pregnant. And I had a thought. I said, our lives are going to be changed forever. And he said, I know. And then he said, are you worried? And I said, no, but I probably should be because I'm 21. And it was in that moment that a thought popped into my head, and it was a thought I never expected to have because I was adamant about never getting married, and I wouldn't do that just because we got pregnant. Even though we loved each other, even though we were making a commitment, it didn't matter because we were making a commitment. It was in my belly. <laughs> but then I said it. I, I said I blurted it out, actually. I said, I love you, but when I have this baby, I don't want to introduce you as my boyfriend. I think you're more than that. And then he asked, so do you want to get married? And I said, yeah. And so two weeks later, we were going to get married. 
So Gatlinburg was really pretty close to Johnson City, Tennessee. It's actually less than two hours away. And it was one of the first places that we visited when we moved to Tennessee because I saw a sign for a triple-decker go-kart place. <laughs> and it was on the highway. And I said, we're going there. And we went there. And I had a bulky sweater on, even though it was like 70 degrees, because I had to hide that belly. Because I was 21, and I know that even though you, say sign, you see signs that say, you know, pregnant women should not ride, I'm like, what do they know? Who cares? <laughs> but when we were in Ga Gatlinburg, other than, you know, seeing this awesome go-kart place, which was really cool, by the way, we saw a lot of wedding chapels, and uh, we commented about that in a restaurant with my cousin. My cousin lived in that area already, and he said, oh, yeah, Gatlinburg is second only to Vegas for shotgun weddings. It's a little classier, he said. <laughs> so there it was. It was my shotgun wedding day, only I don't think it felt like a shotgun, you know? I, I, I really didn't feel like that because we were doing this purposely and we weren't doing this for a party. It was almost like we decided we were going to get married and then we were like, what do you want for dinner? I mean, that's what it was like. But we did tell our parents and uh, they managed to get there, even though because we're 21 and we were awful, we said, well, we don't need you to be there because we're going to do it regardless, but uh, this is what we're doing. We're getting married. Because we were assholes. So Matt's parents all, they jumped in an RV. His sister jumped in. They're driving because they need to be there. Their son is getting married. My mom throws my grandpa into a, a car. My brother's there. My sister's there. They're, they're driving to get there. And my cousin was there with his in-laws because he lived there. But that was it. And we, we drove up to the first chapel that we saw because, there, you know, we weren't Googling things in the year 2000. And we just walked in and we signed up for package number two. It was like an a la carte wedding. I'm not joking. For $299.99, we got to get married under this makeshift waterfall on a bridge and they were going to videotape the ceremony. Oh, and the receptionist was going to take photographs. <laughs> and we got to choose one song. And we could check the box if we wanted a non-religious ceremony or a religious ceremony. It was literally a box that you checked. <laughs> so I was like, well, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pretty liberal. I don't. But then I was thinking, oh, my God, I can't imagine a Southern wedding without God present. So... I checked that box. <laughs> and the night before the wedding, I booked these hair appointments. And I really had no idea, because we had literally lived there for all of a month. And I didn't know what we were getting into. So my mom, my sister, and I, we're all going to get gussied up for me to get married, all big and fat and pregnant. And, uh, and I didn't realize that where we booked these hairstyles, they're actually known for their very southern hairstyles. So we walked out of the salon like we had been in maybe a, a community play of Steel Magnolias. <laughs> I mean, I'm going, oh my God, what is happening here? My hair was bigger than my belly. She figured maybe she had to make it match. I don't know. But speaking of walking, well, 
my feet were not agreeing that day. And so the very cute shoes that I had picked out were just not going to work. On the way, we went to uh, a family dollar store, <laughs> and I bought some literal bedroom slippers. <laughs> and the clerk says, you getting married? And I say, what gave it away? I'm wearing a white bed sheet that is a dress. So much rouge, you would have no idea that I may or may not have been blushing at the question. And she says, well, you're in, almost to Gatlinburg. Your mom looks worried, and you're really pregnant. And I say, tell me what you really think. But we laughed during the drive. It was wonderful to have my mom there. I made fun of my hair a lot. I made fun of my dress. It really wasn't typical bride behavior. It really wasn't. Uh, I actually said, well, maybe my next wedding will be fancier. <laughs> Which is not typical bride behavior. <laughs> that should have been a clue. So I meet the reverend at Cupid's Chapel of Love, and he was literally like something out of a sitcom. I'm not joking. It was, it was almost as if they just said, what is stereotypical? Let's get it here right now. This southern preacher had a thick accent and a bolo tie and a light blue suit. He was like Blanche's dad, Big Daddy. You guys remember Golden Girls? It was really, it was like Big Daddy was marrying me. Before the ceremony, he told me that he wasn't one of those typical stiffs in a suit, but he was a God-fearing man who took marriage very seriously. And I remember trying not to laugh because when he's telling me this, behind him is a six-foot pink statue of what I can assume was a Cupid angel baby with a bow and arrow. And I was like, all right, Reverend Sirius. <laughs> During the ceremony, he had our names on a script that the receptionist had prepared during the check in the box phase. And so it was like a dearly beloved, we are gathered here to celebrate the marriage of fill in the blank and marriage of fill in the blank. You guys get the picture, right? You've been to weddings. And, it, and, and here we are, we're, we're doing this. We're getting married I'm, and I'm shaking and I'm holding hands and looking into the eyes of my soon-to-be husband, and I'm actually wishing that we hadn't opted for the waterfall package because I really had to pee. <laughs> and here it's time. And you all might be aware of this, but uh, my mom actually chose a spelling of my name that's a little non-traditional. The crystals of the world that are spelled C-R-Y-S-T-A-L, I salute you because everybody thinks that's, and that's really how it should be spelled. But sometimes you get a K, or sometimes you get a C-R-I, or a K-R-I, or a K-R-Y, and whatever, and you're always correcting people. But my mom spelled my name C-H-R-I-S-T-A-L, like, like Christ conquers ale. <laughs> and she said that. She's like, it's like Christ conquers all. And I'm like, well, it's Christ conquers ale, and I feel bad for that poor bastard. So during the actual vows, things got a little comedic with Reverend Sirius and his thick accent. Reading from this script, he says, Do you, Matthew, Matthew, take the tristle? 
to be your lawfully wedded wife. And he looks at me, and I look at him, and I sort of shrugged, and he's like, I, I do. Her? Is it her? Is... And do you, Tristel, take thee, Matthew, to be your husband, to honor and love him as long as you both are alive? Tristel? Me? Tristel. So Tristel and Matthew are getting married. And we're going to be together so long as we both are alive. And I said I do. Because the funny thing was even in the middle of package number two, with Reverend Sirius mispronouncing my name and fighting the urge not to pee all over my dollar store slippers, I did say I do because I did love him. And I continued to love him for seven years because I didn't think it would end. So I sent that message to my ex-husband that day. Cupid's chapel of love is burning to the ground and I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about that. And he responded, that makes me sad. And it, it's interesting and easy to joke about all of it, like, oh, my marriage ended and now the chapel burned down. Woo, we got out of that one. Should have saw it coming. Whatever you want to say. It's easy to make a joke, but it's not easy to feel the pain of the past because it's painful and it was sad. And, it, and divorce is sad. And it had been 16 years since we stood on the bridge at the chapel and pledged our lives. It had been nine years since we separated. We had been apart longer than we were together, but we had these two children during that seven years, which means we were tied together, if only through them, for the rest of our lives. And I was looking at that text message, and I started to chuckle because somehow those idiot, asshole, 21-year-old kids were right that we didn't need the piece of paper, that the commitment we made, the decision to have that child together, that was the commitment. And in the, in the, in the end, we didn't have the piece of paper. It didn't matter. And two weeks ago, my son was in the hospital. He had been in the ER, and I was with him for a few hours. And I had to leave because I wanted to go let my husband, Jordan, know that things were going to be okay. And I walked out and I saw my husband, Jordan, sitting next to my ex-husband, Matt, and they were both visibly concerned. They were chatting and they had been hanging out together for a couple hours, but they were both visibly concerned. And I looked at them and they both stood up and I thought, wow, they're worried about our child. So in the end, that wildfire in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, it ripped through more than 20,000 acres. It destroyed 1,000-plus buildings, including Ch Cupid's Chapel of Love. 14 people lost their lives. It was beyond devastating. But I read recently that the town began rebuilding immediately, that they had some quiet support and some contributions, some generosity given from celebrities, from individuals, from neighbors, from strangers, that people were gathering together to rebuild and to start again. You know, farmers sometimes 
have to burn down their fields. And sometimes you hear marriage compared to farming. You have to, you have to tend to your garden. My ex-husband is a good man and I am a good woman, but sometimes you do have to burn those crops to improve the soil and to improve the health of the field. And it was amazing to realize that both of us were able to grow after that burn in the birth of healthier soil. Thank you. In this next story, Daniel Stewart finds that the bad funerals he's been to in the past are making him nervous about what to expect at his own father's funeral. So I open up the double doors and walk into the church sanctuary. And I am surprised at what I see, which I shouldn't be because I've been in this space hundreds of times, but it is taller than I remember and also more narrow. I thought there were more aisles in between the pews. But I suppose that it's entirely because of the context that I haven't looked at the church before as a performance space. But you see, I'm there for a, a funeral. And the thing that, I mean, I don't know that anybody really likes funerals, but I have a particular sort of weird objection to funerals in that I object to the fact that most of them are, they're bad shows. And, <laughs> and I didn't know that I had this sort of reaction until uh, maybe, I think it was about eight years ago, thereabouts, when uh, my wife and I were called to the funeral of a cousin of hers who had, a cousin named Kurt, who had died of cancer after a long battle. And I didn't know Kurt. I'd met him a few times. I'd talked with him in passing. So I, when I arrived at the funeral at this uh, large evangelical church outside of Milwaukee, I thought, well, it'll be nice actually to be around all this family where we can uh, talk about we can talk about Kurt. Well, we went into this in, we went into the chapel where they were playing a loop of a waterfall, which I thought was sort of unnecessary, but that's okay. I mean. <laughs> It was going on long enough we were watching to see when, we, when it would start repeating. We'd nudge, do you see the bubble? Do you see the bubble? That's the clue. <laughs> but then things are about to begin. And I thought it was very odd because uh, Kurt's coffin was open in the chapel. And when they turn off the loop, they close Kurt's coffin and they wheel him out, which I thought was odd. When the minister began speaking, it became clear why which is that they hardly mentioned Kurt again throughout the entirety of the funeral. In fact, the first thing the minister says is, well, I've done about a thousand of these funerals by now. And I'm telling you, that does not make you guys feel, feel special. <laughs> so he finishes speaking, barely mentioning Kurt, Another minister comes up, he mentions Kurt even less. They talk about the church, they talk about what they believe, they talk about what they're doing, they talk about what they told Kurt to believe. A third minister gets up and speaks and mentions Kurt even less. A fourth minister gets up to speak. He at least acknowledges that it just so happens that somebody named Kurt is dead. <laughs> and maybe that's the reason that we all drove to this church 
on this weekend night. The next morning, I mean, I was irritated at the time. The next morning when I woke up, I was mad. So I sat down at my computer, and I had a, a very good friend who had recently lost her father, so I knew that she would, I think, understand. And I began writing her an email that began with these three sentences, worst funeral ever. <laughs> and that was sort of where I began, began being a sort of a freelance funeral critic. <laughs> because the thing, about show, uh, the thing about a funeral is it is sort of a show. And you know, I'm not going to downgrade a funeral because the music is unimaginative or because the pacing is a little uneven. The dialogue is going to be cliched. That's okay. That's, you, that's a solid sort of three-star thing. But what you can't do, and I mention this, now, I'm not a seasoned performer. The only time I get up in front of people is for these storytelling events. But what I know about getting up in front of people is that when people come and they give you something, they give you time, they give you something to be there, when you are up in front, you need to think about what you're going to give back. When people come for a funeral, what do you want them to give back? And what do you want to give them? What do, you want to, what do you want them to come out with? I'm thinking that what you ought to give them is some measure of compassion, kindness, truth. How about that as a starting place for the basics for a funeral? Because a few years later, at another sort of distant family, family funeral, this was, in, this was in fact the, um, the, the uncle of my wife, a man named Bill. Um, we went to his funeral. It was at an Episcopalian church. Now, Bill was one of those men that when he died, it, I was surprised. I mean, he wasn't young, but I was surprised. And I was full of regret because Bill was such a kind man. He was, one, he was a person it was easy not to pay attention to because he was always off in the corner. He never drew attention to himself. But I would notice him because he had this beautiful sort of really deep bass voice. And whenever he spoke, he was so kind. He never said anything harsh. And the thing is, Bill lived what I would consider a really tough life. Early in their marriage, his wife had had a stroke, which left her barely able to speak and almost immobile. So she was confined to a wheelchair and able to do very little. So it was left to him to care for her and to raise their two sons, the younger of whom is autistic. He did that all by himself, and he never complained. In fact, he raised almost single-handedly these two sons who turned into also really kind, caring, giving men. So I thought, well, we're going to go and we're going to talk about Bill, who lived this whole life with nobody paying attention to him. He had this curious physical resemblance to Charlie Brown in that he was <laughs> He was almost, ent almost entirely bald, but he had this little bit of, little fringe of hair that was sort of, sort of, if he had been vain, he would have shaved it off to give himself this, to, to be fully bald. So I thought, here's a nice chance that we're going to talk about Bill. Bill lived what I would consider a real Christian life of self-sacrifice and no complaints. He was an active member of this church. So the minister begins, begins talking. He says, isn't it amazing that I'm an Episcopalian and Bill was a Congregationalist and yet we got along? <laughs> now, 
I'm an historian. And even so, it took me, I think, years to figure out what he was actually talking about. And I realized it was, there were like two relevant points from that distinction, which is that he was referring to the English Civil War, because those were the two sides, which took place about 400 years ago, point number one. And the second relevant point is I don't care. That was just an awkward beginning. But no, he actually doesn't talk much more about Bill for the rest of the service. In fact, he uses Bill as sort of a cudgel. I feel sorry for you, he says, if you don't believe, because you will never see Bill again. <laughs> so I get a little bit harsh when I go to a funeral where they don't pay any attention to what the viewers, the audience, the mourners want and need out of being there. So all of this is on my mind as I'm walking into this church sanctuary. Now, I've been to this church hundreds of times because this is my parents' church. This was my family church when I was growing up. It stopped being my church well before I moved out of the area. I was more or less, not physically, but emotionally pushed out of the church because of, I would say politics, but it's more that they adopted a political stance to what I saw as a real lack of compassion. It was, I felt like they had almost no kindness for the vulnerable, and they had only kindness for the powerful. I was not, I was, instructed to believe that the earth was 10,000 years old, and somehow that the right to life began at conception and ended at birth, effectively. But I'm here for a funeral. This church, these beliefs, not this church, these beliefs drove a wedge between me and my family because they were all believers and I was not. My father so wanted, desperately wanted me to tell him that I believed what he believed. But even to make him feel better, I couldn't lie to my father. So last week, when he died, he died believing that they're all going to heaven and he's never going to see me again because I'm going to be in hell. But I'm here for the funeral. I want it to be a good show. Because the thing is with the funeral, you only get one shot to make it right. The program is pretty simple. Besides the introductory remarks and the music, my older brother speaking, and then me, and then the pastor. My older brother, when he gets up to speak, it's hard for me to see him distressed because my, he's, he's sort of a classical older brother where he always is, has wanted to be in control. And, you know, everything is, everything is totally okay. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's a top executive at this international corporation and et cetera. But I know that in a way that he won't talk about, this, is, this has gotten to him because uh, when he went 
from the hospital back to get his, to, he drove 300 miles back to Tennessee to, to pick up his family and bring them back. So he packed up you know, suits for himself and for his uh, two teenage sons. And when he arrived, right before the viewing, the day before the funeral, he went for the bag and he'd forgotten it. So he was late for the viewing because he had to take himself and his sons and go buy clothes for all of them. So I knew that he was not as okay as he was, as he was saying. So he gets up to speak. And first, he totally steals one of the great anecdotes I was going to use about my dad. <laughs> but the rest of the time he talks about how our father was his friend. And they were able to talk every day. They did talk every day because they had so much in common. They could talk about their faith. They could talk about the, their churches. They could talk about, you know, he sent, he sent his sons off to, to um, a Christian school to be raised. And then it was my turn. This presents, as you might imagine, sort of a conundrum what to say. Because I have always tried to be truthful to my father and about him. And I love my father. He loved me. We were so much alike that it was the fact that we could not agree on this fundamental thing that drove this um, permanent wedge between us that left these vast swaths of things we could never talk about. But there was never any problem with the love. So what do I talk about? I talk about the things that I wish people would talk about at funerals. Because honestly, you know, I'm up standing in front of everybody and there's this, you know, this metal box right, at, right, right here you know, right in front of me, which I helped pick out. You know, it's steel, it's got this waterproof seal and a lock for some reason. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the one thing that I can't get out of my head is that my dad's not dead. It's absurd. I mean, it's only my subjective experience, of course. But the entire time I've been alive, my parents have been here. My parents have, have existed since the beginning of time. Therefore, my father is still alive. There's been some horrible mistake because my father goes to the hospital all the time. And they always have some paperwork snafu and he doesn't get discharged correctly. So tomorrow or the next day, we're going to have a big laugh about this because my father's going to come home from the hospital because he's skirted death so often he's apparently decided that he's not going to go. And that's okay with me. But I can't deny this. there's something missing as well. But it's not my father because I would know if my father was gone. But I've been talking to all these people. I've been learning more about my father than I knew. I have more of my father in here now than I did last week. My father's still around. The only thing that could possibly be missing is me. This thing I feel. Because, I mean, my parents, all of our parents have these things, these parts of us that only they have that only they know, that only they remember. 
if there's something missing, if there's something in that box, it's not my father. It's all of us. It's all of us that's going to be put in the ground that's going to go forever. And I sit down, and I have no idea what I've said. I have no idea how anybody has heard, has heard it. And now it's time for the pastor to speak. And I was here a couple of months ago, my most recent visit, because my father was in the hospital, and my mother wanted company, so I said I would go. I was there on a Sunday. And he had talked about public restrooms. So I just screwed my mouth shut, as I had done through much of my youth. And he begins talking about my father, his friend. And he says, his friend is gone. And he knows that his friend is in heaven now. But that doesn't make it any easier for him to know that. Because we're here. Even knowing that he is in heaven, we still grieve because he is not with us. And a lot of the rest of it sort of bounced around in my head. But at the, when he stopped speaking, I realized I'm comforted. So, I mean, the music at the, at the funeral wasn't great. We like tried to hit too many, too many hymns. It was like too much of the greatest hit selection, let's do two verses of everything. pacing got a little slow sometimes. But I think all in all, I think we put on a pretty good show. Thank you. Navigating a car through a mesocyclone can come quite easily when you suffer from anxiety disorder on a daily basis, according to this next story by Elon Cameron. On a sunny summer afternoon, I sent the following text to a group of our friends. I hear there's going to be a storm, but let's have a barbecue, unless the storm's bad. Those long, yawning days of sunshine and beach time and all the shit we have to do despite the fact that we live in a tourist town <laughs> and are surrounded by people who are on vacation. That feeling of pressure every moment you have, have the most fun available. And it's perhaps like some advanced form of FOMO, fear of missing out, caused by being around people who are seriously having more fun than we are. <laughs> it's okay. I'm kind of used to that, though. I've had an anxiety disorder pretty much my whole life. When I was young, I was put in special ed because I couldn't sit still. My first grade teacher used to remove her polyester belt from her fancy jumper and tie me to my chair with it. How this may have informed my sexual proclivities is a story for another day. <laughs> but yeah, that happened. I didn't know I was anxious. I didn't know what that meant. It was the 1980s and people couldn't even talk about quiche without bringing up gender politics. <laughs> so they put me in special ed. It didn't help the anxiety, it just gave kids more reasons to pick on me. 
At that time, I wasn't diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, PTSD, major depressive episodes. And though those features and symptoms of each crafted the structure of my days, I also wasn't diagnosed with attention deficit or dyslexia. A clarity of why I'd done so poorly in school was the least of the things those things taught me about myself. My diagnosis at age seven was minimal brain damage. Thank you, Munson. <laughs> I learned to live with anxiety. Adolescence was rough, but once I was in my teens, I sought meditation and martial arts, and I kept to my safe group of friends who loved me enough to tolerate my neurotic nature. I learned to cope because I had shit I wanted to do. Not everyone can do that, though. I don't know who to credit for my emotional fortitude or dumbass stubbornness. Probably my ancestors. Living with anxiety is an adventure. I learned a joke about it. Anxiety is the spice of life. <laughs> when I bopped around to psychiatrists, trying various expensive and shitty medications, and I found therapist, a sliding scale social worker, who took me on for 10 solid years. I know it's so rookie therapy to be all like, well, my therapist said this, and she, re she requested that I try that, and she's so encouraging. It's adorable and annoying, and if you find it really annoying, you probably need some therapy. <laughs> but I don't care. Jody Michaels saved my life. She was the first person who ever saw me have an anxiety attack and was able to tell me what it was. I didn't know much about what caused some of the symptoms that seemed to make me not just the base level of weird that I am today, but like super bonus weird. <laughs> I lived in a state of hypervigilance which is an enhanced state of sensory sensitivity accompanied by an exaggerated intensity of behaviors whose purpose is to detect threats. Hypervigilance is also accompanied by a state of increased anxiety which can cause exhaustion. When I learned this term, I was surprised I wasn't named formally in the de definition. Example, Elon Cameron. <laughs> I like to call it hypervillage dance. It sounds so much more fun <laughs> and social. My therapist challenged me to try to use it in ways that were a little bit more interesting than just tormenting myself. So I started keeping track of things. I started recording details about individuals and I started keeping a journal. At a younger age, if I knew you, I would be able to tell you everything you'd ever worn that I'd seen, probably in chronological order. Way to make friends. <laughs> when I first met you, you were wearing a red and orange sweater. But before that, I'd seen you wearing that blue flannel and jeans. Yeah, not creepy at all. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm an only child. <laughs> I remember having an anxiety attack during a standardized test. It was one of those number two pencil bubble filling in kind of bullshit tests. And I just started making patterns because I was pretty sure I was going to be dead soon because my heart was pounding irregularly. I was thirsty and sweaty and I couldn't really see straight. So the most I could do was like fill in some kind of random pattern that felt like it was giving order to the universe at that moment. I was so fearful when I had anxiety that I thought I might be possessed by a demon or Satan or evil, which was not very helpful because I was raised by an agnostic and an atheist who were just like, that's bullshit. It's like, okay, but what do I say when Satan comes for my soul, mom? <laughs> 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 
Working to live with anxiety has been like taming a giant wild creature, I assume. Despite my childhood obsession with grizzly atoms, I've never actually bitten off that much. But when raging, it can ruin your entire day or your life and everything in it. I'm going to propose that if cared for and tended to, maybe it can also give you strengths. Taming the beast is so annoyingly grown up, it's things like drinking enough water and getting enough sleep and eating right and exercising and getting sunshine, taking time to study and be quiet and write, and at different times of my life, it's been necessary to have pharmaceutical intervention. But for the last 25 years, I've utilized a number of integrative modalities, which have been enormously helpful. Working to live with anxiety, I feel like it's just a friend you hate and you get to know better, and then you hate less. <laughs> so back to that sunny summer day, Jen and I had both been working a ton, and we just really weren't taking any time for ourselves or fun, and we were getting that really downtrodden, cranky summertime feeling that was like, why is everyone having a blast and we just work all the time? <laughs> so we were like, okay, let's do this. We were at the store, we were gonna grill some meat and fish and even tofu, we had a selection of beverages that covered all the summer cocktail trends, and we brought flowers and candles and every sort of produce that looked beautiful to us. I'd start massaging the kale the minute we got home. Jen would prep the meats, and we'd both do beverage service. We even planned a badass charcuterie board with cheeses, contraband, and all the garnishes. We hauled our cart out to our 15-year-old car and started to load it up. In this short span of minutes, the sky flashed dark like the dusk that happens in the afternoon, and a chill accompanied by a brisk wind picked up quickly. I snapped a picture of the sky because I'd never seen clouds like that before, like a giant layer cake collapsing in the middle. <laughs> we hopped in the car, a certain amount of urgency upon us, aware that the storm was going to be major. Not even a mile from the store, the shit hit the fan. There were fire trucks with their sirens blaring, blocking Division Street, our most obvious route home. We crossed on the numbered streets as we were able and had to redirect several times because of large trees blocking the passage. We made our way to Garfield. The wind was dumping rain in buckets the wipers had no chance to keep up with. Finally, we were closer, just three miles from home. And then a clap flash and a huge tree hit some electrical wires before falling on a car, which created a blast of sparks. We made a U-turn, backtracking blocks to find another way through. Jen started doing this yelling prayer thing that I had never witnessed before. <laughs> We'd been together about 12 years at that point, and I'd never heard her say, Dear Lord, please, Jesus, help us. Her whole body was shaking, and she was using the gas pedal like it was a pump organ. I made a joke, you sound awfully Christian right now. <laughs> she barely nodded. We took a turn and trees were literally flying by our view. Trunks the size of my ample plus-sized body flew past us as if we were in the Wizard of Oz. What's happening for me in this moment though is so vastly different from her because I shifted into this weird zen-like state where I'm totally calm and have a cl crystal clear path of exactly how we will get to our home. It's like I downloaded this weird map that has an actual you are here pin on it. 
and several different possible routes that are rated by color in their order of safety. I have no idea who to credit that for. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I was just in this place where I could tell that Jen, like if I yelled at her, it was gonna just shut everything down. So I got really calm and quiet and I explained, we will get home if you listen to everything I say and do exactly what I tell you to. And Jen was like, okay. And I was like, okay, squeeze your butt cheeks. Cause she's driving. <laughs> Anyone who's done public speaking knows that you're advised and you know to squeeze major muscle groups of your body. You know, it's probably why I'm like always kind of slowly marching when I'm up here. I'm like, I'm just alternately clenching. But I I she's driving and I know that if she's so flooded with adrenaline that she can't even listen, we're going to die. <laughs> like so I'm like, you have to start coursing the adrenaline through your body. And she's like, okay, sweet Jesus, please save us. We turned down so many side streets covered in branches and limb debris. I guided Jen around them where we were able and often had to redirect. We were almost a mile from our home. That road was the promised land. And a giant tree fell right in front of us, like slam on the brake style. Came screeching to a halt right at this huge oak tree. And it fell about four feet from the house that was right there. And the nice people in the house had this sweet little garden. And God, I hope none of you are that person. But <laughs> they had these like two rows of beautiful irises. And Jen was like, I can't go that way. There's flowers. I'm like, they're going to get new flowers. There are no new us. And so we got to the other side of the tree. But then we both saw that there were open electrical wires on the road. And extrapolating from what I knew about lightning striking your car, that you would actually be safe because the rubber tires would act as an insulator, I extrapolated and decided, this is totally fine, keep going. <laughs> Which fortunately it was, but my electrician uncle nearly killed me when he heard that. So we were able to get to the other side of that we drove over some large limbs and definitely heard some strange clunking noises coming from the undercarriage of the car. We saw trees fall on houses and on cars and dozens on roads. I was watching carefully. My senses felt acute. I was tactical drill sergeant and it was my job to get this freaking out kid and all of our goodies home. We made it to our house, but there was a tree on our deck and I don't mean like a little ornamental tree. I mean like a 40 year old maple had just completely departed from the earth and crashed across the front of our house. And there was a 20-year-old white pine across our driveway with several cedars. And Jen looked at me and said, how did you do that? And the power was out, but we had food we could grill. We had a cooler full of ice and the ability to save some of the stuff from our fridge. We were both so shaken. We sent photos of our deck to our friends and we're like, barbecue off. <laughs> Some of you know. I don't really know what gave me the ability to be calm in that situation. Maybe it was just sheer necessity and human instinct. 
But I have to think that it was my many decades of constantly preparing for ruin that could have led to a little bit of this. It was the function of all my sleepless nights and sweaty-handed days and the payoff for years of fearful thinking and surviving anyway. I'm not trying to polish a turd. Anxiety is not awesome. <laughs> it doesn't make you better, but maybe it can save your life and it can inform your survival instinct in a way that makes you mighty and strong like a giant wild creature. If you have anxiety or any of the diagnoses I've talked around, you're not alone. You don't have to be alone with the suffering. I feel like Grizzly Adams sometimes, sitting with my evening tea by the fire while this dangerous beast snoozes at my feet. But at least the thing sleeps now. Thanks. In the final story of this show, Dave Murphy thinks a riptide off the coast of a Hawaiian island might be where he meets his end, but he isn't going to give in so easily. I am not a good swimmer. Um, there are many things I'm not good at, but this story involves the water, so I'll start out by saying that. Um, but with that acknowledged, I do like snorkeling, because to me, snorkeling is much like swimming with training wheels. So we uh, were in uh, the, on the island of Kauai, the Hawaiian island of Kauai, and uh, we want to find an off-the-beaten-path beach where we could uh, do some snorkeling. And uh, you can always tell the uh, local beaches because instead of the dollar rental, um, low-budget cars, they, uh, uh, the off-the-beaten-path beaches have uh, the pickup trucks from the locals. So we found one of these beaches and it was great. It was fun to see everybody playing, uh, meals being prepared. And over in an area, there was a group of guys and they each had a can of beer and a spear gun. And to me, that looked like a Polynesian deer camp. So I felt <laughs> like I was more at home. And the only thing that was missing is if Speedo could develop a form-fitting flannel uh, bathing suit then it would be just like my native UP. So, so it was a comfortable place, and these guys were spearfishing, and I, I knew I needed to stay away from them because I would be a good prize take-home if I went in there. And so we, uh, my, my wife stayed on the shore, and I went in, and I made my way around the spearfishermen, and I got out to this area that was actually really magical. I've done a fair amount of snorkeling, and I've been in places where there's been much more in the way of fish and colorful reef. This wasn't like that. I saw some turtles, which was fun, and I saw a few fish, but really what was appealing about it was um, I was in about 30 or 40 feet of crystal clear water, and the ocean swells were coming in. It was kind of a cove area, and I don't know what was happening exactly, but it was a flight-like experience. I could look down, I could see the bottom, I could see the fish and some turtles beneath me, and they were floating with me and very rhythmically back and forth. We weren't going in, we weren't going out. So it was a beautiful and dreamlike experience. It was mesmerizing. And again, I'm not the brightest of guys, so I can be easily entertained. And I stayed there for a long time. I don't know how long, but just feeling this sense of flight. And all of a sudden, I heard a crashing sound, and a wave broke and came in, and it 
uh, it just tumbled me all over the place. It tore off my mask. It tore off one of the fins. A second wave came, a third wave came, and I was a bit of a mess, but remarkably, I stayed calm. And I got my gear back together. Those waves, you hear about rogue waves. That's my only explanation of what happened. But it went back to that nice uh, ocean swell. And uh, so I got myself put back together, and I got the hell out of there. I got back to the beach, and um, the next strange thing happened. When I got out of the water, everyone was gone. Everyone. The beach was cleared out. On Hawaii, all beaches are public, but some of the pathways to the beaches are not. So in this particular case, they were closing a gate at 6 p.m., and uh, I then saw my wife running from the gate area, yelling, where have you been? You've been out there for over an hour. I lost sight of you. Everybody cleared out of the air. And I can't tell you what a disconcerting thing that was because I went from this dreamlike state of flying to having my gear stripped off of me. I'm not a good swimmer. And uh, then I get back to the beach, and it's like the twilight zone. No one is there. And, uh, and my wife, who never yells or gets upset about anything, is screaming at me what's been going on. So it was a strange end to a rather remarkable experience. We got it together, we went back home, uh, got back to the mainland, and uh, that experience really stayed with me. I wanted to feel it again. I wanted to have that flight-like experience again. So we made it back to Kauai a few years later, and the first thing we did was we had it for that beach. And much of it looked the same. There was the same batch of beat-up pickup trucks, families, kids playing. Uh, one thing that had changed was the water was a bit rougher. And I noticed something that I hadn't seen the first time out. In the distance, uh, there were some rocks with really heavy surf pounding on it. And that must be what kind of made the bay or cove area relatively calm, was seeing that uh, batch of rocks kind of as a protective barrier. So we, my wife and I kind of talked it over, you know, is this a wise thing to do based on the last experience where it looked calm? And we agreed it's not someplace I should stay out for long, but I, I'd like to just you know, poke around not far from shore and see if I could get back out to at least see that flat bottom um, place that had stayed in my mind for these past few years. So I had a watch on this time. I promised I wouldn't be out for long. And she, she said something that I always appreciate. She said, be careful. And uh, a few years ago, I had, a few years prior to this, I had gone skydiving and she said, be careful. And I'm not sure what she was expecting that I might do, like take off my parachute, uh, before, but, but what I realized is what she wanted to be able to say is if I died, she could say, I told him to be careful. <laughs> I guess he didn't listen. So uh, she told me to be careful. I was, and uh, I headed out, and it went, it went bad in a hurry. I uh, could not see the bottom at all, and I kept coming up because I was getting water in my mask, water in my snorkel, and I, I uh, felt that I was still under control, and I was still trying to make my way out to that magical spot. But then I started hearing this pounding surf, and I stuck my head up, and I first looked back at the beach, and it was unbelievable that I had traveled about 200 feet out. And behind me, the rocks were very near. The rocks that were several hundred yards from shore were several hundred yards closer. And I was in a rip current of some sort. And uh, again, not being a good, a good swimmer, I, I realized don't fight it. Stay calm. Try to work your way out. 
And I think that would have worked under normal circumstances if not for the rocks. I was getting closer and closer to the rocks. And whatever direction I tried to fight, I was not getting away from them. And the pounding sound was remarkable. It looked like a washing machine with the surf and foam. And so something happened then. Uh, for the first time in my life, I panicked. And this isn't your garden variety panic. This is, uh, I could hear my pulse in my face panic. I started fighting it, swimming, stroking, and uh, it was remarkable. I'm not going to say I'm a world-class athlete, but I, I do enjoy exercise. My cardio conditioning is pretty good. In about 30 seconds, my arms and legs were wasted. Uh, I, I had nothing left. And I lifted up out of the water at that point, and I'm spitting water, seawater, out of my nose, my face, I can't see. And on the shore, my wife is standing with her hands on her hips looking for me, <laughs> but she's looking about three or 400 feet in the wrong direction because that's how far out I'd been taken. And at that point, I'm sucked under. And um, I'm being battered around, I'm starting to hit things, and I know the rocks are near. And I just had that image of my wife in my mind, and I, I felt like I, I'm not gonna make it. I have nothing left in my lungs, I'm gagging underwater, uh, I have nothing left in my arms and legs to fight it. And I don't know if you've ever been in the experience where you've tried to anticipate what would be the final thoughts you might have at the end of life, but I really believe that I was there. And I just closed my eyes at that point, and I thought, this is shitty. <laughs> We are on vacation, it is prepaid. The only way we're going to get any value out of this if I die is if my wife eats two Hawaiian buffet breakfasts every morning for the next 10 days. Have you ever tried to eat guava pancakes with poi syrup? It is thick and it is ugly stuff. And how is she going to do this? And then, what's gonna happen to my body? God, I hope a white shark consumes me because there's been turtles everywhere. And if a turtle consumes me, I was a runner. Do you know what the headline would be? It would be former runner consumed by turtles. <laughs> that, that would mean, I, I'm trying to think, is that irony? Because that stupid Alanis Morissette song, the only thing ironic about that stupid song is that there was no irony in a song named Ironic so I understand paradox, I understand contradictions, but is this really ironic? And then I was on the surface. So I'm on the surface, and I'm trying to figure out what just happened. And uh, what, what, what appears, what, the best thing I can piece together is the current, the rip current died, and I'm in some kind of an eddy, and I, I, now I'm frightened as to what do I do because the rocks are over here. If I go back where I came from, I'm gonna hit that current again. And so I decided to tentatively try to make my way through sh to shore and I was dragged to shore. So I think that the current was circulating in. So in no time, I'm back on shore or I'm back near shore. I'm in knee deep water and I've really been banged around. So I, I try to stand and I can't stand up. And you know how you may have those experiences where a, a car accident or something, you don't know until later how badly you were injured. So I look down at my legs and I think, my God, you're never gonna walk again until you take the fins off, you dipshit. Nobody can walk in fins. So I, I take the fins off 
and, and I can get up right. And I don't know if any of you are in the medical community here, but um, there is a physiological phenomenon when the body goes into a massive state of panic. What happens is that uh, the calcium deposits in the bones actually leave uh, and they move back into the bloodstream. And they are deposited in your forefront teeth so that as you come out of the wire, you're going, <sighs> because all you have are these gigantic teeth after this experience. So you're coming to shore, <sighs> and down the shore, my wife has spotted me, and she's coming at me. And this is the South Pacific, and it's my loving wife, and she's wearing a bikini, and she's coming in my direction, calling to me. And the only part of my anatomy capable of engorging are my teeth. And that could work, but, but I'd, I'd prefer not. So as my, wife, as my wife approaches, she sees me, and I'm, I'm waving. And she's waving, too. And she's going, did you have fun? Did you have lots of fun? Did you feel like you were flying again? You were only out there for like five minutes. Why don't you go back in? Go back in. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and our guest MC, Janelle Bowers. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us next month for Me, Myself, and I. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 